Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, we talk about what do you do if you get a code beast and there's no tests? Um, At all. <laughs> yeah, I have run into that. Um, I stepped into a code base that was really, really big and had like 6% test coverage, code coverage, that and that's... So they had not... some tests. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, I mean, I guess you could say that a little bit. <laughs> so, um, you know, but yeah, we're going to we're going to talk about what do you do? How do you handle that situation? Where do you where do you go with that overwhelming feeling of, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? Uh, but before we go there, what did you do this week? So on my own project, been doing data, data, and more data fixes. <laughs> so what does that mean? So like my application is designed primarily from the start to do to accept form submissions. So it's like a form builder, but it does it for online giving, online event registrations, different purposes. And some of the data structures are just, everything's optimized for that. But I'm kind of doing this segment builder I was talking about for sending marketing emails. And basically the data had to, like I've had some structures that have been left around. Like if someone tries to do submit a form and doesn't complete it, there's partial submissions and I keep those around, but when collecting records from the database in order to send an email, you know, you don't want to, of course, send to partial submissions and there's a way to exclude those. But it was just to make the segment builder efficient. I went ahead and put some more controls in place and cleaned up a lot of data, uh, addressed some of the form spam issues to better target those in a way that made pulling the data more efficient to exclude those. So I spent a lot of time this week working on that, basically cleaning up data to get the feature I want built built that performs well. So that's, that's the main thing I was working on in terms, of my, in terms of my own project. The other way I've been actually, the other database consultant I've been doing has actually been around shrinking databases because, um, you know, people delete, like I do PostgreSQL consulting and people delete data, but sometimes what they don't realize is that deletion doesn't reclaim disk space. Mm -hmm. It only makes it empty within the data files itself. And a lot of times this results in bloat. And the only way to get rid of it is to do a process called a vacuum full on a table. But if you do that, it locks the entire table, even for reads. So pretty much nobody does that. <laughs> There's separate tools like something called PG Repack that allows you to repack the table online, but you need two to three times the disk space of the table. And some of these tables that people are dealing with are, I think this one customer may have like a 10 terabyte table or more than 10 terabytes, one table. So trying to find a free 20 or 30 terabytes to be able to repack it <laughs> using this tool is uh, going to be a hard sell or hard to come by anyway. <laughs> but one way you can do some shrinkage 
<laughs> is by uh, doing re-indexing. So if you have a lot of indexes, you can do a re-index operation. Now, still, that's going to double the size of the index during the rebuild, but that's much easier to do than trying to do the whole table. So you can pretty easily shrink, and it's something you don't have to use a separate tool. It's built into Postgres. You just do a re-index, and it makes your index, it removes the bloat from the indexes, making them more efficient. So just working on that for a couple of different clients. Yeah, but you? it's kind of funny. We were actually our our largest client. That's something we were working on this week is um, doing data culling and cleaning ups and optimizing, you know, because they've got millions of records in, in different tables and things are slower than they should be. And we're like, yeah, that's well, that's because you've got gobs of stuff that you just don't need anymore. We need to archive it off. So we set them up an archiving process and we're starting to work, work that in. I mean, it's not like, you know, with a lot of these big clients, you can't just say, here you go. Here's your script. Go. No, they have to process it through their staging environment and get it signed off on by the, by the C-suite folks. And, you know, it's it, 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 all the bureaucracy involved, but um, then you have to prove to them. Yes. Look, we, we got, you know, copy of your We've live data validated. And, yeah. <laughs> and it makes this, this big of a difference. And, but, and that's one of the things that we were, because we were, you know, deleting a bunch of old records and they were like, why is it getting smaller? We're like, what? Cause it basically we're is, deleting a bunch of records, right? <laughs> it's, it's essentially just marking them as deleted conceptually yeah, yeah. and not actually removing them. Um, it'll it'll keep the table from getting much bigger because it'll reuse those slots but you know unless we take your site down for a long period of time <laughs> we're working on speed here data speed we're not really concerned about disk space at the moment um so they were they were really confused by that for a little bit we were like eh, no no this is how databases work <laughs> so uh yeah, and then you know I got to actually hack on some code this week. I I did I had to do a little bit of support for them, but um, I actually got to do do a bit of code hacking, which was nice. Haven't done that for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, the wonders of big companies. Um, I mean, you know, it's good and it's bad in different ways. Well, things come with a flow you know eventually you'll be doing coding all the time trying to get something done by a <laughs> deadline can, can i take a break from this and just do some support please exactly uh so anyway you're not here to hear me whine you're here to find out what you do when you step into a situation where you've got a large code base and no tests um there are a number of issues with that. One, if you're trying to learn the code base, it's really it, it, the one of the easiest ways to learn it is to go through the test and say, well, what's it supposed to do? How does it do it? Well, if you don't have those and all you've got is code to read, that takes a lot longer. You could do it, but it's not nearly as efficient. But the other major problem is having a large code base without tests is just horrible um well nobody wants to touch anything 
right for fear it's, it will break. yeah it's oh god I, i'm not changing that code because i don't know why it's there it, it looks absolutely wrong but i don't know why somebody put it there and if i change it i don't know what i'm gonna break in the million lines I, of code around it. i'm the one that's gonna break it and then i'll be my all my fault and i'll i'm the one that gets in trouble but if i don't touch it i'll be safe right and if I don't touch it, the program never moves forward, but at least I don't get fired, you know? Nobody <laughs> wants to be in that situation. That that sucks. So I know none of our viewers have ever caused that situation because they are all very smart, and they always do test-driven development, and they have tests for all their code, and they don't, they don't create code like that. But it, it does happen in the real world, and I've stepped into it a few times. Um, and it's it's not fun. So how do you deal with that situation? Because just starting to write tests for this huge code base is an overwhelming thing to try to think about. And most of the time, what will happen is nothing. People just say, <laughs> I can't. I can't deal with that. But there are things that you can do to work your way through it. So here's our. The Rubber Duck Dev Show step-by-step -step guide <laughs> to creating tests for untested code. Um, so, look, there's no magic bullets for this. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take a while, and you're going to have to step your way through it. But here's some, some tips, I guess, to get you started. First thing you need to do is you need to run some kind of code coverage and find out what state your code is in compared to tests. Now that's easy. If there are zero tests, you have 0% code coverage. So you don't need to run a code cov yet. Um, but if you've got some, like the one I ran into had like 6 7% code coverage, but they didn't know that. I had to run a code cov and, and say, okay, here's what you've got. And that's not good enough. So um, there's, a, there's an interesting little tidbit that's not terribly important, but I just think it's interesting, and I, I hear this a lot, and I, I get a little sticklerish about it just to kind of be a jerk sometimes because <laughs> I think it's funny. But people say code coverage and test coverage like they're the same thing, and they're not. Um, Code coverage is how much of your code gets exercised by your test suite. It's basically just, is this line used anywhere? Yes, check. Test coverage is how thoroughly those lines of code get tested. And it's a it's a weird distinction. And there's a great article that I found that that uses a good analogy, a toy analogy. And I've got a link to that, but I'll I'll kind of summarize it here so basically imagine those kids toys where you have a, a container with a hole in it and you're supposed to put the block in the hole right so or you know square peg goes in the square hole right. round peg goes in the round hole etc yeah right so but for simplicity's sake let's just say one hole a block a cube right and i'm supposed to put it in the hole so put block in hole is my method right? If I put the block in the hole, that's 100% code coverage. But it's a very small percentage of test coverage because 
I can put block in hole with this side down or this side down or this side down or see. So that's the difference kind of between code coverage and test coverage. So you've tested the fact you've tested a successful case. Right. You've placed the block through the hole. However, you failed to you haven't tested any of that code with failure cases, for example. Right. Or what or happens you try when you to put in sideways or whatever. Right. Or what happens when the blue side is down? What about when the red side is down? What about when the yellow side is down? Right. So there's all these different that that even could be passing conditions, but they're different passing conditions. So in order yeah, to have it could have multiple success cases and multiple failure cases. Right. But, and even though you've tested those, say there's severed seven different iterations of each of those or whatever, or or a total of seven, just having one case gives you 100% test coverage for that line of code or that method. 100% code coverage. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and see that's exactly that's the what point I meant I mean. to say. Whatever. <laughs> in, in most conversations, you're just going to use those interchangeably. It's not really important that that's a difference. What's important is that you understand that there is a difference between yes, this line of code was tested, and yes, this line of code was tested in all the conditions it needs to be tested in. So just keep that in mind as we go through which one is code coverage, which one is test coverage is of zero importance, right? And those will be used interchangeably in most day-to-day -day conversations. But there is that is a thing that you need to kind of consider when you're looking at test coverage or code coverage. And from here on out, I'm going to use them interchangeably because I do in real life. So when we're talking about test coverage or code coverage, we just mean lines of code that have been tested. So um, for when you come into a situation like this, the first thing you need to be asking yourself is, how much code coverage do I currently have? And how much code coverage do I need to get to? You don't want to use this as a success metric. Like having 100% code coverage is not a reason to go, yes, I win. No, because you've essentially wasted a lot of time. You don't need 100% code coverage in almost any project. It's never going to happen. And if it does, you've wasted a ton of time because there's a lot of your code that just doesn't need to be tested. Um, so what is what is the, the good place to be? Well, 70 to 80% code coverage would be really good code coverage for most projects. If you can get to that, you're in good shape. And the reason for that is that if 20 or 30% of your code is not tested because it's calling external things that are already thoroughly tested or, you know, gems, gem calls that are already thoroughly tested or aesthetic settings that don't really matter if they work exactly the same or not or if they change somewhere you know if this button is green or yellow that's not really a testable thing always if you're designing a a system that does a b test comparisons whether the button is green or yellow makes a difference and that's something that you should test 
So what you test depends on your project and what it's trying to do. But how much you test, usually if you get to somewhere in the 70 to 80% code coverage range, that's that's a really good place to be. And that if I came into a situation where I've got new code, a new code base, and it's got 80% test coverage, I'm not scared to change things at that point. Yes, it's possible that I may break an edge case or something like that, but I'm not going to fundamentally screw up the program if they've got 80% code coverage. So, um, but again, that's, you know, that's kind of a, a, a loose guide. You may be on a project where 60% code coverage is more than enough. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but that's usually where I'm trying to get is somewhere in the 70 to 80% range. Um, the other variability is how critical is the project or particular areas of code or things like that. Like if, if this project doesn't work right 100% of the time, do people die? Is, is this the control project for the, the, the Mars mission, you know, the first people to Mars, we better test the crap out of that. Is this my personal little blog thing side project that nobody cares? You know, I don't need as many tests. So you have to weigh all those kind of things. Um, if you, when, when you're thinking about what should I test and how much effort should I put into creating tests for code that already exists. Uh, so what are your thoughts on where code coverage should be? I haven't really thought about it in terms of a percentage. Um, mostly it's what I tend to do is look at, all right, what is the job that something has? To, like I do it by importance by what's the number one thing this application is supposed to do? And is that well tested? And then as other features are added to it, just cover them that way. I haven't really looked too much. I mean, yeah, I run them just to get a sense like the code coverage tools, but I haven't really said, hey, I'm gonna try to hit this target percentage. Right. It's mostly like if I'm going into a project and I need to change, add a new feature to it, then it's like, okay, what tests exist for it? Is the code that I'm going to be touching covered by test coverage? And if it isn't, then I'm like, hold up for a second. I think I need to add some tests here first. And then I can go and muck around with what's going, you know, right. Touch that code. Yeah. And, and so I, that's kind of, so that's kind of one method to approach it. Well, we haven't talked about methods to approach it yet, but. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too, is while yes, the, the 70, 80% is kind of a good guideline to try to aim for. I would never say, and I don't know many programmers who would or project managers that, that would say, 
let's just go ahead and write all the tests till we get to 80%. That, that's goofy. You work on a section of code, right? And like you do, like you said, you kind of identify, okay, where am I working? And what do I need to test here? Just, just here. Um, and so what the, the best way to do that is to run a code coverage tool against the test suite. Something like in the Ruby world, it's simple cov. Uh, in Python world, it's coverage.py. Um, they, you know, most languages will have some kind of code coverage tool. .NET has one. I forget exactly what it's called, but... Um, yeah, and I've been looking at some of my code coverage for, for my application. And, you know, it's coming up 0% for something that's a model I created that I decided to go a different path on, but that model still exists. So that's just kind of hanging out there, dropping my score down, but doesn't really do anything. I mean, it's pointing out to me, hey, I need to drop that model. It, I, you know, but so it is cruft that's hanging out there, but it's dropping my score. And a lot of times I do tests with um, like plain Ruby objects as opposed to testing through the controller itself. So some of my controller percentage is pretty low compared to other areas of the system. Right. But I'm kind of relying on Rails's, it's a Rails app, on Rails's broiler plate stuff not to fail. Right. And if it fails, you know, I, I have the, uh, you know, the exception notifier to let me know if something unexpected happened. Right. Yeah. So, so I haven't really targeted, it's another reason I haven't really targeted percentage because sometimes I look at it, I'm like, well, I mean, the reason why it's this way is because of, you know, this, but. Right. Yeah. And the percentages, I think it's, it's, it's not a matter of, okay, let's get to 73%. And if we're at 72%, we're not good enough. We have to keep going. It's more of 10%, we need to do some work. 65%, okay, we can lighten up a little bit and, and you know, just add some things as we notice tests are missing, right? So, yeah, don't, for sure, don't, don't take that percentage to mean this is where my success marker is. It's, it's kind of a how urgent is it that we get more tests in here type of thing. Um, and it's also a metric, if no one's thought of this yet, that can be easily manipulated. Yeah. So you could go in, like imagine this, you could go into a class and you could just put a bunch of carriage returns on tested code. Now suddenly your percentage is going up. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a thousand ways to game that system and it's really easy. I mean, I could, I could get a... a, a like you say, I, there's all kinds of ways to get it up to 80% without actually writing a whole bunch in the way of tests. Um, and, it, you know, so that's why anyway, you don't use it just, as a metric. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it funny. Right. That's yeah. That. So that number only means so much. And, and you know, really you should use it as kind of a guide to do we have, are we getting close to enough tests here or holy crap, this is not tested. We need to, to concentrate on some tests before we start changing a bunch of code. Yeah. Um, and so you use the, the, the code coverage tools and most of them, like uh, I'm more familiar with the things like SimpleCov because I work in the Ruby world. Um, 
but they will give you like these these broad categories of um things have this much percentage like your controllers are 50% tested your models are 80% tested your uh views are 3% tested right and then you get an overall score but that lets you say okay well let me go into my controllers since I've only got half of them tested and see which specific controllers. All right, this one's 0% tested. This one's 100% tested. And then I've got everything in between, right? So, all right, well, if, I'm, if I've got a 0% test, okay, is this controller A, are we even using this controller? Or should I just drop it? B, is the code that's in the controller worth testing? Or is that why it has a 0% test score? Because there are some, I, I've written some controllers that are so basic, they're not worth testing, and they have a 0% test score. And I'm okay with that. Um, so, you know, you kind of, and then these code, the, the code coverage tools, a lot of times will let you drill even further and say, okay, this particular line of code was never hit in the test suite. But this one was, and this one was, and this one was, and hey, this one wasn't. So you can really target, okay, I need to write a test that'll exercise these two lines of code, because this is a, a an if condition that never got hit in the test. And that's kind of part of that test coverage change, um, or differentiation. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just babbling. I'm just, whatever. Um, so... You know, even then, once you run one of those things and you see, oh, God, we've got 10% test coverage, well, where do you start with writing tests? Well, you start with, okay, we're getting ready to add this feature, and it's in this area of the product. So let's start writing some tests in this area of the product. Let's see what's missing. Let's start building up a little bit of test structure and get this area of the product, just, just this functional area, let's say, up to 60 or 70% test coverage. I could do that. That's a, that's an achievable thing. Um, and it's not some big project that you have to convince, get a lot of approvals from management to spend time doing it. It's just say, okay, as, as a component of building this new feature you're asking for, essentially it's going to take a little bit more time just because you're going to make sure it's, you know, tested and things around it are tested. Right. And if if it's hard to sell, hey, I need to write tests for this area of code, then just when you're doing your estimating, build a little fudge factor in for some extra code test writing, right? If it's you're going to have to deal with bugs. Right. <laughs> More bugs if you don't <laughs> anyway. Right. And, and if project manager is smart, they'll realize that it's cheaper for me to have you spend a week writing tests than spend a week fixing bugs that come out the tail end because the further bugs get along in the process, the more expensive they become. So it's, and if I catch them with tests internally, I don't get the PR dings that I get if clients discover them. So, um, you know, if, if project managers are smart, they'll understand that that's a worthwhile investment. Now, we don't want to spend six months doing all the tests all at once, but hey, well, if I've got... Well, do, do like you say, like you said, if you are adding feature A to 
one distinct area of the product, we'll then add test coverage only around that localized area mm -hmm. such that you can add that additional functionality, you know, test to make sure the existing functionality works. You add, you know, your test that now will presumably fail. And then you build out the feature to make the successful test. Right. And you don't even necessarily need to test out all the particular edge cases and stuff. Where you want to start is let's get main path functionality tested first for this area. Then I can, you know, start working on the test for my particular feature set or my bug fix or whatever it is. Let me test that thing. And then as I'm testing through, I will likely find some edge cases that I'm going to have to put a test in for here or there because I run into something as I'm developing. But just start with the, the main path functionality, right? Don't worry about the edge cases yet. And usually, I mean, if I understand what you're saying, I mean, I call that the success path. Mm-hmm. In other words, like my success path, for example, in a form builder is that someone can go to a form and submit the form successfully. Right. So can that, that's the success path. Can that happen? You know, there the, I guess what I call the education of the failure paths are, hey, if you don't fill out required field, it's going to show you an error, error and it's not going to submit the form or, you know, things like that. Right. And those, those tests are important. But um, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, but, but if, if you're when you're starting from ground zero or yeah. close to ground zero, yeah, just go with the success path. Yeah, make sure that you don't break the the fundamental thing first, um, and then you know as time goes on, eventually some bug will hit in that area of code. You'll get a bug report, and so the first thing you do with a bug report is write a test to reproduce it, so that you make sure that you fix it, and then it never regresses back to that. But then while you're in there, you say, oh, well, yeah, this bug happened because of this. But what if they had done this? Well, let me write a test for that, too. Right. Because maybe I just found another edge case because some customer did something I didn't expect, but they were real close to doing a second thing I didn't expect. So let me make sure they won't do that either. And that's how you eventually. And it's going to take a while to build up a complete test suite. It's not an overnight thing. Um, and that's one of the reasons why all of our viewers will do test-driven development. And they write the test, then they write the code to make the test pass, and then you've always got your tests, you know, up to snuff. We, we know you guys are like that. Um, but, you know, just start with your main path functionality. Even when you're starting a brand new project, that's where you start with your test is, okay, what do I want this to do in a normal case? You know, I'm right. Yeah, I mean, because that's the first thing. Yeah, that's the first thing you're building is probably the most important, the critical path or main path or whatever you want to call it. Right. And then after that, you think, well, how could somebody screw this up? Let me make sure they can't do that. Right. Because I don't care how good a programmer you are. Somebody will find a way to screw up your stuff. It's just that's just the way it works. Um, so the other thing when you're tackling this, like if I've got a whole bunch of code, a code area that's got no tests, so I'm starting tests from scratch, right? Uh, one thing I do is 
I find out if I need to, I bring in other people, product people or support people and say, okay, what's the flow here that I have to make sure works? What just write out for me, this is, they do this, then they do this, then they do this, da, 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 da. I write, I, I'll basically, so I, I use RSpec most, almost exclusively. I'm sometimes forced to use Cucumber, but RSpec. So I'll go in there and I'll just write out the, describe this, context, this context. It should do this, it should do this, it should do this. And I just write those out with a bunch of skips in them. I don't even write the tests yet. I just write out, here's my outline of what things are supposed to do. Does this look right? Yes. Great. Now I start fleshing out the main path tests. But I flesh out first the ones that I know how to do, the ones that are easy, the ones that are things like, okay, when you submit this, it should create this record that looks that has this these field values in it. Great. That's simple. If I get to something that's like, it has this really complex um, JavaScript interaction that I then have to go out with JavaScript testers and all this stuff, just skip that for now. You know, you need to test it, but let's just keep forward progress going. Right, flesh out the ones that you know how to do first, because that's the psychological part of, yeah, I'm making progress. I'm steaming forward. I'm I'm doing it. I'm I'm going. Here we go. We've got 30 tests now, and it didn't take me, you know, it took me four hours. I've got 30 tests. Woo. Let's go. All right. Now I've got to now I got to go back and do the sticky ones, but you know, I feel good about it. Um So I use skips a lot in RSpec when I'm laying out tests from scratch. Um even when I start a new feature, I don't just write one test and do it. I'll kind of outline here's everything that I know it needs to do on my main path. And just skip, 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 skip. But I know where I'm trying to get to. Now I'll go work on this little bit. And that keeps me from getting overwhelmed with this entire process. It also allows me to get all this stuff out of my brain real fast. It's kind of like a to-do list. Uh, they say to do that because it gets, you, gets it out of your brain and frees up your brain from thinking and trying to have to remember all that stuff to, okay, now let's just do it. So. That's a good way to approach those things. That's how I approach them. Um, I think it's a good way. Um, so it must be if I think so. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I, I tend to... One of the other big decisions I make is for this particular area of code, do I want to test from the object level up to the integration level and build the tests up that way? Or do I want to start with the integration and then work back to the object level? Um, it doesn't sound like that would be a big deal, but it kind of is because depending on the complexity of what you're trying, the area of code you're trying to work on, you may want to start with the little brick and make sure the brick works before you test the house. Um, but if it's an, if it helps the understanding of, okay, this is my integration, this is where I'm supposed to end up. 
let me work backwards from here on the tests. Um, that that's helpful in a lot of scenarios too. When do you do one or the other? I, I it just I don't know. It's kind of one of those things you experiment with, and then you start getting used to doing it, and you can kind of look at a situation and go, yeah, I should probably start at the objects here, or I should start on the integrations on this one. Um, I think what I tend to do is I start with the integration main path. So I get the whole, you know, I want the successful path of everything fully working. So that's what I do first. But then I go, as you would say, object up or for the failure cases or the edge cases or other, you know. So I kind of go as the first pass as a, I'll call it top down or basically integration down to the making sure everything works. But then I kind of go bottom up the other way because I don't want to put, because again, it will take more time to do a bunch of failure cases in an integration level. Mm -hmm. So I do those at the individual class or object level. Right. And, and the other way for um, determining that is how your brain works too. Because for me, in most cases, there, there's rare cases that I won't, but in most cases, I start at the object level. Now, I, for fleshing out tests, I do start at the bird's eye level to, to get my tests all laid out and understand, you know, all the steps I'm going to be coming through. So I guess I do like an integration level outline, but then I start doing my test fleshing at the object level. But that's because that's how my brain works better. I can just say, okay, I know the rest of it's coming, but let me just focus right on this thing and get it all working and think through that. Then I'll attach it to the next thing. Um, but I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how my brain works. Um, whereas you, yours, you start from the integration level and work your way back in. Nothing wrong with that. It's just different ways of thinking about things and what you're comfortable with. And there are situations where I will work from the integration level, depending on how much I know about what's going to go on and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, I like working bottom up. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, I think I'm probably, I take it a step at a time. Like, for example, so that's kind of why I do it that way. So like, I don't go through and have the whole structure, for, you know, like you were talking about. I just think, all right, what's the simplest thing I need to do? I need to render, like, again, going back to, you know, allowing people to submit forms. It's like, okay, I need to render a form in some way, you know, so, okay, do that. And then... You know, so what's the next step I need to do? So I just take it step by step and then build out the functionality that's needed to achieve the goal. You know, so if I need to take 10 steps to get there, I start start on step one and then I'll go as deep as I need to just to achieve that step one and then take the next step. Right. And that's that's what I call, and I think a lot of people call, but what I what I call that is decomposition. So it, it's kind of a difference of how do you decompose, right? It's it's the same concept of let's break this down into a little workable thing, the the big thing into a small thing. Um, 
and, and that's what both of us are doing in that context. It's just I'm starting at one end and you're starting at the other. Um, and we meet in the middle. But um, it's it's a that that tends to be an experience thing. And if you're a new programmer and you're just starting on the, the TDD path and you're just starting to get into this stuff, I would highly recommend that you take a project and work it from bottom up and take a project and work it from top down and see which one fits your style better and works with your brain better. And the more you kind of work both of those sides, the better you'll get at recognizing when one of those is better for you and when the other one is better for you in what situations. Um, and most people I know will kind of settle on, okay, most of the time I'm top down or most of the time I'm bottom up. That's my default mode. Um, and, you know, most programmers I know can mm. do it either way. It's just I work faster in this mode. So. Whew. Man, we got through a lot of stuff really fast. I was just rambling. Holy crap. Um, so, how often do you use code coverage? Not religiously. It's It's something that... I check periodically. It's not something that I run every time I'm running tests. And I mean, it runs, of course, but do I consult it and check it? And, you know, hey, I just developed this new feature. How have my test coverage percentage changed or what? Yeah, no, I, I don't do that. It's mostly, it's something that I check on a periodic basis, I'd say. Maybe right. a couple of weeks, month or whatever. But you kind of know how much coverage your code is getting because you're writing the tests and you're writing the code and you you kind of yeah, keep Yeah, I a... mean, I, yeah, if if there were a lot more people contributing code then and I was you know the code czar of of the the project <laughs> then yes, I'd want to keep much close uh I would want to monitor monitor that more carefully because that way I can check it and say, whoa, suddenly we're dropping our percentage of our models, for example, or in our Ruby base. And, oh, look, it's because of Joe, you know? <laughs> right. So we could go talk to Joe or whatever. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what we use it for. We, you know, we've, we did a show, what, a couple of weeks ago about the CI CDs and the, the, um, running those scripts and part of our script is is simple cov runs and gives us yeah. a report back and that's w one of the things that we use that for since we have so many different developers is the project managers can look at that and say whoa we suddenly had a big dip in um, coverage percentage what's going on and the important yeah. thing to realize about that is not that hey coverage percentage went from 73 to 72 it's that hey, coverage percentage dropped 5% in the past two days. Something's up. We need to investigate this. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's a metric that indicates the health of your project. And if you have suddenly have a drop-off in that, then, whoa, okay, what's going on? So I think it is 
a good management tool, uh, you know, for management. So when you're having a lot of people touching a code base, it's a lot more important to monitor that on a regular basis. But again, for me, um, don't have a ton of people touching this code. So therefore, it's not as, you know, critical. Right. And again, you know, if this was a, if I had three people, three developers working on a blog application, I wouldn't be as concerned as if I had three people working on a HIPAA application, right? That, that So how much you pay attention to those numbers is very much dependent on what kind of project it is and how, how critical it is that it stays well-tested. Uh, for me personally, I don't care if I'm writing Hello World, I'm going to have it well tested. But, you know, when, when you're in a business environment and you have to weigh time and cost and things like that, those are the things you want to think about. So, um, one other thing that I wanted to bring up, too, while we're here is tomorrow is Veterans Day. If you are a veteran or you know a veteran, Thank you for your service and for my freedoms. Very much appreciate that and happy Veterans Day. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I think we've kind of beat that horse to death. As much as I love talking about testing, testing really is my favorite topic. It's my favorite thing in, in programming. Well, then I got a qu extra question for you for okay. extra credit. <laughs> Go. So I know that the code coverage tools have... A metric, and this is kind of probably getting to the code coverage versus test coverage. They tell you how many hits you have per line. So that is, this code has, how many times has this line of code been hit by a test? Mm -hmm. So if it's 10 hits per line, you've got 10 tests that have hit this one line of code, for example. So that is another metric in addition to just a raw percentage. What benefit do you see or how? do you think that should be used? Well, one of the things that I use that for is if I look at a code, uh, some code there, and I see that all of this code has been hit 20 times with my test suite, I've got too many flipping tests that are testing this code. I need to call some of my tests out, right? So that's one thing to look at. If I get it and, it, and it's like this block of code, one line has 20 hits, and the other lines have two, either I'm not testing something right, so I probably ought to investigate that, or I haven't written the code properly and I keep hitting this line for some reason way more than I should be. Um, it, you can kind of use it to, to kind of gauge, am I going through here more than once? Right. If I'm looking at this code and I know, hey, there's probably three or four different scenarios I should be testing for here, but I've only got one hit, I probably don't have enough tests for my test coverage. I've got code coverage, but I don't have thorough test coverage here. Um, so that that's kind of what I use that, the three things I pretty much use that metric for. But the primary one really is, holy crap, I'm hitting these lines 50 times. I've got too many tests in my test suite. No wonder it takes an hour and a half. So do you have a 
So I know you had quoted a percentage, target percentage. What do you think about testing per lines as a metric, like uh, a rough target? It, it very much depends on what those lines are, right? If I, it, it, like, I'm not going to worry about uh, testing um, view functionality as much as model functionality for a lot of apps. But again, depends on what the app is. In my cases, generally, the, the primary thing that we're dealing with is data. So I'm much more concerned about thorough testing of the models and some of the controllers than I am about the views. But I'm not a front-end programmer, so I don't give a crap what it looks like myself, right? I just want to make sure the data is coming in and out right. So hey, we've got another team that worries about that, that frou-frou stuff. I don't care about that. Um, but Well, just to let you know, the... Uh... Actually, with like simple C, uh, simple COV for Ruby, it actually doesn't cover the views. Yeah, it doesn't. It does. It, it does the helpers, which for those people who don't know, helpers are basically methods for your views. So mm -hmm. you know your, you know, the, the thinking is that your views are just a presentation layer, and you shouldn't have any real logic in there that would coding logic that would break something. Right. And I was, I was kind of, I, I use that term to mean like the view layer, not the actual yeah, yeah, yeah. files, okay. but um, okay. more like MVC. I'm, I'm more worried about the M and the C than the V. Now there yeah. are people that worry about the V and that's fine. You know, the front end programmers, they have to make sure it works on, 800,000 different resolutions and all the different phones that are out there and all that stuff. I don't have to care about that, fortunately, in my current position, <laughs> which is fine by me. Um, but typically, what were we talking about? What was your question? No, no, no I'm just talking. I was just <laughs> making a comment that the views, uh, aren't really tested or there's no percentage giving for view coverage or anything. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of coverage that you're doing, like coverage per line, all these different metrics aren't really there for the metrics. They're more of a guide to say, Hey, you should be looking at this area of test. Um, so all these coverage tools, don't really, the numbers aren't really the important part. It's the changes over time and the, 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 the gaps in things that you find. Um, or the hills in the case of too many tests, because over-testing is a thing. Uh, you you want to keep your test suites as lean as you can while sufficiently testing. And that may also, I think you alluded to this, but I think that also indicates potentially a code structure problem. Right. And perhaps it's pointing to an area where you could refactor the code to be more efficient so that, you know. Right. And don't forget, too, that code is code, but tests are also code. 
and they should be refactored. They should be maintained. They should be pruned and and loved just like your main code base uh, because they're protecting your main, main code base. Um, and if you get to a point where your tests take an hour and a half to run, they don't get run very much. And so things start breaking. So, you know, love your tests. And one way to love them is code coverage. It's a really important way to love them. <laughs> oh, God, I'm just... Uh... I'm having a night. Whatever. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please make sure and mash that like button and follow and subscribe, depending on your fish seeing this on Twitch or YouTube. Um, we're getting about half our views from either or. So, uh, you know, Twitch, uh, twi Twitch. Holy crap. I'm going for coffee after this. Follow, subscribe. Throw some comments down there. Let us know how we're doing. Mash the like button. Just mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. And uh, until next time, happy programming. Happy programming. Bye.